Welcome, this is your host, Zaida Sorel Medina with The Voice Podcast. Welcome back. Thank you all so much for tuning in. This is a podcast that centers on urban and social work topics. I am a trained social worker, a social work educator, and I also have a PhD in urban and environmental planning and policy. In this first season, I draw from my life story to shed light on urban and social work topics. In my previous episode, I recount my experience as a runaway teenager. Essentially, when a person runs away, it's because they're running away from something. And that I was. My caregiver and I had a hiccup, which led me to flee. I ended up going back with my biological mom, Yetta. In this episode, I recount my experience living back with my biological mom after what seemed to be like several years I reflect upon my experience adopting to a new environment. I conclude by deriving takeaway messages from my story that serve the ultimate purpose of enhancing personal and professional growth and resilience for my listeners. I quickly adapted to my new environment. My new home was with my birth mother, Yeda, who now lived in a four-family flat situated in a well-kept neighborhood. Nonetheless, it was still located a few blocks in the ghetto. I had essentially moved back to the ghetto, but my new home was not as bleak as previous ones. Moreover, I was just a bus ride away from the suburbs. Thus, on any given day, I could escape the ghetto with just a few quarters. The only pitfall to my new living arrangement was that my new home was somewhat far from my school. I had to catch two buses and a train and participating in after-school activities further exacerbated my situation. Since I had to rely on public transportation, sometimes I arrived home at 9 or 10 o'clock at night. By the time I arrived home, I had to decide between eating and doing my homework. In many instances, I chose the latter. Thus, to be more efficient, I did my homework on the bus. Sometimes I missed cross-country practice altogether to meet my daily academic demands. 
For fun, I study words and talk to my friends from school on the phone. Occasionally, my cousin Stanley came over. Because we were both older at that point, our relationship had changed. We used to call ourselves gangsters, set things on fire, and create raps. But now our relationship was simply reduced to a salute. He liked girls, and I liked books. He listened to rap, I listened to rock and roll. He wrote rap songs, I wrote poetry. We outgrew our relationship. Notably, I became the oddball in my family. My mother looked at me strangely when I told her that I was a vegetarian. She cannot understand why a person would not want to eat meat. That 4th of July, my brother Andres purchased a heap of fireworks. Stanley came over with his bag of explosives and added them to the collection on the table. I was on the porch fanning myself when Stanley walked up to me and asked if I wanted to learn how to light and hold a missile. Despite the many years we spent apart, he and I still shared the same youthful vigor from our childhoods. I watched him carefully light each firework and throw it in the air. He threw it each time gracefully, as though he had done it hundreds of times before. Your turn, he said, tossing the missile in my hand, chuckling. He pulled out a set of matches from his back pocket, stroked the wood deeply into the cardboard, and set the missile aflame. My heart pounded as the fire burnt the stem of the missile. Right when Stanley said, now, I tossed the missile in the air, how he showed me. We tossed missiles in the air all night long, burnt water bugs with sparklers, and lit smoke bombs to kill the mosquitoes. Meanwhile, my brother Andres and Jonathan, who were never at home, were at home that night, lighting fireworks with us and enjoying the hot summer night. My mother sat on a plastic folding chair on the porch with Christopher on her lap, pointing at the red and golden lights in the sky. Right when we thought the bag of fireworks were empty, Andres went inside the house and returned with a big bag loaded with more explosives. As the night grew longer, I thought about how good it felt to be with my family. Christopher laughing playfully in the background, Yetta telling everyone to be careful, Ricardo swearing, oh shit, oh shit, Stanley lighting bugs on fire, Andres and Jonathan lighting firecrackers back to back. The summer days were refreshing. Sometimes I went out to hang out with Seth and Luna in the commercial district with other gender bender people. We painted our faces with makeup and took exotic pictures behind colorful murals. On Sundays, I visited the drum circle on Delmore Avenue and danced to intoxicating rhythms. One morning, when I was getting ready to hang out with my friends, My mother called me in the kitchen. She was up cooking early in the morning as usual. Where are you about to go? 
I'm about to hang out with my friends. Where? The loop? Since when? What do you mean? Did you go out when you lived with that lady? What lady? That lady who kicked you out. You know, that dyke lady. I paused and said nothing. I knew by the quickness of Yetta's response that something was about to happen. I wanted to tell her that dyke was a hateful word and that it perpetuated homophobia and that she shouldn't say such hateful words. But my mother had a one-habit way of thinking. Surely she would not have understood, so I said nothing. Those strange people who you live with, she continued, are all sick in the head, especially that dyke lady. I'm not stupid. I know what her intentions were. My mother continued her diatribe, waving the spatula in her hand, grease flying everywhere. The next thing you know, I blacked out. When I opened my eyes, we were both on the floor pulling at each other's hair. Andres heard the commotion and flew into the kitchen. He pulled us both apart and stood in the middle of us. I was far too mature and civilized for an old-fashioned whipping. My mother hit me, so I hit her back, I told Andres. But she's your mother, he said. Says who? There was silence. Geta and Andres stared at me fiercely, shocked at my response. My mother didn't raise me. Thus, in my eyes, she wasn't my real mother. I was motherless, and this was my truth. And no one could change that. You're an ignorant girl. You have book smarts, but you're dumb as hell, Andres yelped. Later that evening, I thought about all of the witty rejoinders I could have said in response to my brother's nasty comment. Yeah, I have book smarts, but at least I'm smart. I'm book smarts. But at least that's going to get me into college. Following the fight with my mother, our disagreements became a quotidian part of living with her. I could feel when she was about to have a conniption, and so I stayed away. On other days, she was in the most joyful mood. Her temperament, interestingly, flipped drastically on any day, hour, or second. And therefore, given my mother was unpredictable... So was my everyday life. On one unpredictable day, my mother said that we were moving in a house on Maffitt Avenue. It's two stories, has a backyard, a front yard, and a basement. My mother reminded me of a gypsy, always moving. I was tired of moving, though, from home to home, family to family. I wanted a normal life like my classmates. I wanted a mother and a father, my own bedroom, a stable home, and a family of intellect with a cat and a dog. My mother tried to convince me that moving wouldn't be that bad. I'd have my own bedroom, she said, but I didn't really care about having my own bedroom. We were moving to the grittiest part of the ghetto where I couldn't go running around the neighborhood because it was dangerous. Running as a leisure activity was certainly a middle-class pastime. People in the hood didn't have time for that, unless they were running from the cops. Not to mention the new neighborhood didn't have a grocery store, 
There was a convenience store that sold Twinkies, cigarettes, pop, and bubblegum. Where was I going to buy my broccoli, tofu, soy milk, and whole wheat bread? Lastly, the schools in the neighborhood were overcrowded, low-performing, and deadly. I heard stories all the time about how students brought guns to school and how there weren't enough books for the students. I didn't know how I was going to go to college if I had to worry about getting shot on the way to school. I couldn't sleep for the following days because I feared my uncertain future. Part of me wanted to run away from home, but at that point, I had nowhere to go. How was I to explain to my mother that moving to this new neighborhood would have an adverse implication on my master plan? So I phoned my friend Luna and I asked her for advice. Why don't you just ask Norma if you could live with her? She asked. That wasn't a bad idea. Norma lived right around the corner from the school. She had a big two-story house with several bedrooms. After all, she was my favorite teacher. I don't know, Luna. After what happened with Anissa, people are crazy. What about Seth? Luna asked. Are you crazy? I can't live with a guy. Well, you can't live with me. My mom would say no. Why can't you just catch the bus to school and you, that way you can just stay at the same school? That's a good idea. I hung up the phone and went to my mother's room. She was on the bed, scraping her feet with a nail filer intensely, watching her daily soap opera. I have a question. Yada stopped fouling the soles of her feet and looked up at me. Can I stay at my school? And then I added, I don't mind catching the bus. To my exquisite surprise, my mother said yes. I didn't mind catching the bus. And fact, I was accustomed to catching many buses, doing my homework on the bus, carrying several bags on the bus, waking up before dawn to catch the bus, making friends with the bus driver to get extra bus tickets to catch the bus, carrying a whole bunch of bags, moving from place to place, asking strangers if I could stay with them, and so forth. As long as I could stay at the school where I had my support system, I didn't mind catching the bus. That was the least of my worries. I was in the 10th grade and Esmeralda was my new friend at school. She had long hair and eyelashes, wide hips, a tongue ring, and thick cheeks. She wore eyeliner, lipstick, and blush. I liked her because she exposed me to femininity. Something that I once found appalling suddenly became appealing. We sat in the back of class and talked about girl things, such as children, marriage, cute boys, and Remedies for our menstrual cramps. Esmeralda's mom, Marta, was always throwing up something delicious in the kitchen. One day she lured me into the kitchen to show me how to cook her famous sopa de carabaza. 
or zucchini soup. She diced the tomato, zucchini, and onion to perfection with a sharp knife and transferred the vegetables in the pot with a tad bit of water. The vegetables sizzled when they hit the pan and steam rose immediately. She opened the cabinet filled with oregano, cumin, papikra, turmeric, and other spices, reached for the salt, poured a pinch into the palms of her hand, and added it to the pot. When the vegetables were tender, she tossed in a handful of mozzarella cheese and placed the lid on top. You can do it with the cheese, she said, or without, but the cheese gives it flavor. She grinned, reached for the bag of corn tortillas on the table, lit the gas stove, and tossed the tortilla on top of the flame. At that point, I didn't know what was happening. Marta just threw a tortilla on the fire on top of the stove. This is how we do it back home, in Guadalajara, she said. I like Marta. I like the air of confidence about her. I studied the way that she cooked, her every movement. When the side of the corn tortilla, facing the flame, darkened, she flipped it with her bare hand so that the other side also darkened. The smell of burning corn emitted into the air. The blacker the tortilla, the better it tastes, she said, opening the tortilla bag and tossing another one onto the flame. To my pleasant surprise, the sopa de carabaza with burnt corn tortilla and mozzarella cheese became one of my favorite dishes. When I needed a recipe or wanted to know how to cook something, I just called Marta. Sometimes I phoned Marta more than I phoned Esmeralda. Jose, Esmeralda's stepfather, was a kind man just like Marta was a kind woman. He was a storyteller. He met the President of the United States, died and came back to life, and he could read minds. He knew how to make anyone laugh. I like Esmeralda's family. I liked her house. The large bowl on the kitchen counter, always filled with fruit. The smell of cilantro, onions, green tomatoes, and corn tortilla. The fresh linen in the bathroom perfectly folded. Jose's garrulous personality. Marta's sweetness. I like being with Esmeralda, sleeping in her bed, watching her put on her makeup, and listening to her stories about her exes. One day in class, when the teacher was not looking, Esmeralda tossed a note on top of my desk. Meet me at the bathroom after class. I have something to tell you. You are not going to believe it. Esmeralda then proceeded to inform me that she might be pregnant. 
She took me to the bathroom where we stood and waited for her to pee on the pregnancy stick. Some minutes passed, and then Esmeralda emerged from the bathroom stall. She looked at the pregnancy stick, and then she looked at me, and then she said, Do you think I'm pregnant? I did not know anything about pregnancy. I did not want my friend Esmeralda to be pregnant. We were in high school, and we had emerging goals. If she was pregnant, then what would this mean for her future? She looked down at the pregnancy stick. And then the next thing you knew, the lines on the stick lit up. Esmeralda was not pregnant. However, she wanted to do another test, just to be sure. And so she went back into the bathroom stall, emerged out of it again, and waited for the lines to light up. Again, Esmeralda was not pregnant. I wondered what it was like to be Esmeralda, to have a boyfriend and to be romantic, to wear makeup and tight jeans, to be desirable, to live on the edge of life, to take risks, to have Marta as a mother and Jose as a father. Esmeralda knew nothing about American slums, broken families, and teenage homelessness. She did not know about my family background, my past, or where I came from. Esmeralda cared only about her lush hair, the thickness of her eyelashes, and the size of her boobs. This is why I like Esmeralda, because with her, nothing else mattered. I did not care about my past, my present, or my future. I simply lived in the moment. Thank you all so much for listening to my podcast. I have a few takeaways to share with you. The first takeaway is actually from the words of Esmeralda. When we were in high school, we used to pass notes to each other. Back in those days, we didn't have all that texting and cell phone stuff. So I actually still have a note that she wrote to me. And this is what it says. Todo se logra, pero es importante aprender a quererse y sentirse bien con una misma. And what this means is that everything you will accomplish, but it is important to love yourself and to be good with yourself. As a teenager, I was engulfed with being someone else and comparing myself to others, that I lost sight of my own self-worth love, and appreciation. Now, as an adult, I look back and I realize that my resilient story has provided me with so much strength 
that I am so grateful for. This story motivates me to invite my listeners to embrace themselves. You may not have what you want in this precise moment, but if you embrace your inner beauty, your strength, leadership, courageousness, resilience, and other positive qualities, you realize that that in itself is an accomplishment that deserves celebrating. This strength-based framing of understanding self allows us to better manage life. This next takeaway is precisely the title of this podcast. Smell the corn tortilla and sopa de carapaza. As a youth, I was engulfed in my goal of accomplishing my master plan of going to college. I was preoccupied with thoughts of overcoming my daily challenges. I was operating in survival mode. In my story, I learned to appreciate the value of living in the moment and appreciating the present. If you're a person who is undergoing stress, maybe you're a student, an educator, a professional, a parent, a person with a story to tell, I invite you to recenter your focus to the present moment. Smell the corn tortilla and sopa de carabaza, which is a metaphor for appreciating the here and now. Another term for this is mindfulness. So if you haven't start smelling the smell of corn tortilla and sopa de carabaza, start smelling it now. And if you know anyone who's undergoing a difficult moment, feel free to share these messages with them. Thank you all so much for listening to The Voice Podcast. Peace out. 